<laughs> Guys, I can't fucking wait to see that movie. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And this week, we are bringing you a very special feature. Oh, yes. yes. We're going to play a fun little game of Mary Fuck Kill. I cannot wait to watch this movie again. Because it's just so fucking weird. We're about to hit the dance floor at Jackrabbit Slims because we've got that Saturday night fever, baby. I loved this movie, too. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. I just pray that Green Book doesn't win Best Picture. Oh, Picnic. God, I know. That- <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Talk Movie to Me, a weekly podcast where we either feature a new release and delve into our weekend entertainment, focus in on a performer's career, or buy an extra large popcorn and do a double feature. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And we are so excited to say welcome, welcome, welcome to season six of Talk Movie to Me. We have an epic season of movies ahead of us and a few surprises for you as well. And as always, we thank our Patreon subscribers for your continued support. We really love doing this podcast and have brought you over 150 episodes of tears, laughter, swoons, fights, cynicism and skepticism and opticism. Opticism? Opticism. (laughs) If anyone has opticism, it's you. That's for sure, because it ain't me. (laughs) And all manner of existential dread. We've given our passion. That's me. That's you. (laughs) We've given our passion to this project, and if you love what we do and want to help us continue to talk movie to you, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash talkmovietome. Your support means everything. Now, to this week's film. For our first episode of Season 6, we're talking about George Miller's latest film, 3,000 Years of Longing. In it, Tilda Swinton plays Alethea, a narratologist who at first seems quite content in her life. She's a self-described solitary creature who's passionate about her work and clearly quite successful at it as well. And on a trip to Istanbul, she's drawn to a small glass bottle she finds in a bazaar. When she returns to her hotel room and starts to clean the bottle, she removes the top and releases a djinn, played by Idris Elba. As the legends describe, he offers to grant her three wishes in exchange for his freedom. Althea, a scholar who literally studies stories and the way that they shape our perceptions, is very familiar with the lore of the jinn and knows that all wish-granting stories are ultimately cautionary tales. And this is a jumping-off point for this unique film, in which the jinn recounts the stories of his life across three millennia of longing. Directed by George Miller, 3,000 Years of Longing asks a question. Whether the chain that binds us to our damnation or the force that sets us free is love, the universal wish we all ultimately long for. Helen, first impressions. Yeah, so this starts off quite whimsical and fantastical, more so than I was expecting. We see that Tilda Swinton's character is kind of seeing people that aren't there or seeing these like creatures that aren't there. And so I was a little bit thrown off by that, but kind of like, okay, cool. We're like getting right into this like fantasy element of the story. And then I was also kind of taken aback by the presence of masks (laughs) in the film. Mm -hmm. There's She's Mm -hmm. uh, like talking to an auditorium of people and some of the people are wearing masks and some aren't. And I immediately took note of that and just thought like, oh, I guess this is the you know how some movies are going to be now like there's just going to be people in masks because Mm -hmm. that's 
part of our lives and that's part of you know life now and maybe forever so i i just thought that was really interesting to see that yeah how about you sinclair what was your first impression well really my first impression was when i saw the trailer for this um when i watched uh, nope the trailer for this mm. plate and got me really excited because it was just so visually arresting it had so much energy to it i was very excited to see this and at the beginning of the film, we're being introduced to Alethea, played by Tilda Swinton. And it becomes very clear that she is the narrator of the story. And then we also find out that she's an erontologist. And immediately I was like, that sounds like an interesting job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Same. Hmm, how does one become this? Um, so I was very intrigued by that. And we see that she's flying all over the world to these different conferences. So... At first, I was like, damn, how do you get this job? Yeah. <laughs> this sounds like a great job. So I was like very interested in her and her telling this story. So I was on board right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me too, I had just seen the trailer too and I hadn't read any, re- any reviews or whatever, but I I just thought, okay, you've got Tilda Swinton. It's going to be, it's his genie story. But I don't know. I was ready for all the mythical stuff right off the bat and... She does have a cool job. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I can actually see you doing that, Sinclair. But (laughs) I, for me, I was kind of hooked right away. And I went into this assuming that I would really like it. Mm. Yeah. Why don't we jump right into storytelling? Because this is what this film is about. (laughs) Yeah. It's about stories and telling stories. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Well... In, in terms of storytelling, the source material for this is uh, called The Gin in the Nightingale's Eye, and it's a novel by A.S. Byatt from 1994. It's technically a collection of five mythical short stories, mm. one of them being named the, the Gin in the Nightingale's Eye, which is what this film is based on. First of all, short is not how I would describe it <laughs> at all. It's actually a novella. It's like 280 pages. Right. So what I thought was going to be a quick read wasn't really a quick yeah. read. And the reason I looked into the source material for this after I saw the film was because I actually felt a little bit incomplete mm. after I finished watching this movie. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know a more about Tilda Swinton's character Mm. and I actively sought out the source material to get more answers that Mm. I felt the movie didn't give me and did you find said answers I would say yes I did Mm. and the reason being is in this novella Alethea and her story is the main focus Mm -hmm. and her life being driven by the desire to know stories and search for them and tell them and to explore them and how stories really trickle into her everyday life and make up her identity is really the core themes of the book and I think that in the film it's mostly focused on the tales that the djinn is telling, where mm-hmm. in the novella, that doesn't actually happen till I would say close to the end of the novella. Mm. And the first part and the majority of the time spent in the novel is really exploring her fascination with 
story and not mm. having an exciting story of her own. Interesting. Uh-huh. So I feel like I felt similarly to you, Sinclair, in that when this movie started, I felt very excited by it and enthralled by it. But by the end, I was kind of like, huh, that didn't really go where I thought it was going to go. And it doesn't feel complete. And it mm. is, I mean, the majority of this movie is the gin recalling his previous wishers <laughs> that he's come upon. And then when we get to the point where she finally makes her first wish, it feels a little unmotivated and but then also it just it doesn't really go anywhere from there like it it feels disconnected it feels not fleshed out and in doing some research in the making of this movie I feel like what George Miller really wanted to do was tell an epic story and wanted to you know focus on the Jin's previous stories in order to show these different like moments in time and like different mm. cultures and things. And and I, I feel like maybe that took over from the fundamental story. Cause for me, the story doesn't work so much here, but the imagery really worked and the mm-hmm. like adventure of this movie worked for me. Yeah, I can totally see that. Okay. Well, let's first start by people maybe wondering what even is a gin? <laughs> Mm, and yeah. if you've seen this film, you won't be wondering that. It makes sense. Um, and you'll <laughs> you'll be more familiar with the word genie, which is mm. a sort of a modern iteration of that word gin. Actually, this goes back like almost 3,000 years mm. in history of what these are. And that dates back to like pre-Islamic Arab religion. The word um, is believed to be Aramaic in its origin. And it's just referencing these like pagan deities from way in the back of the day who weren't necessarily inherently evil mm-hmm. or inherently good but they weren't humans either they were spirits mm-hmm. they had magical powers and they lived in their own societies and tricked humans and all the rest right mm-hmm. even in the quran the quran states that allah created three types of beings from three different substances humans of the earth angels of light and jinn, which were comprised of smokeless fire. So mm. this is a idea and a concept that has been weaved through all of the stories that are cultures, right from ancient you know, Mesopotamia up mm. until the present, talk about. Our idea of the jinn as a genie is really from the Arabian Nights. Mm-hmm. Basically, it was a series of stories collected from about the 8th to the 14th century. And that's where we get this idea. Uh, There's a story involving King Solomon who finds a genie in a bottle that grants him wishes in exchange for freedom. And that's what this is. I think in terms of storytelling, what didn't work for me in this film was that it was kind of going against its whole ethos. Right. This film is like an ode to the power of storytelling. It's all mythical language. It's all epic and historical, as you said. And yet the plot, basically, the way that they constructed this story couldn't have been any more simple. Two people meet. One person narrates the story of their life over five different tales and fables. And then that's it. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. And I think that it's because the core theme in this is about this woman. And it's Mm. also about loneliness and it's Mm -hmm. about two people coming together and sharing the stories of their lives and finding a kinship in that but I mean ultimately what would have made this movie a lot different 
is if they had actually focused on Alethea more. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because it, it just seems very out of nowhere when she just decides that she wants this Jin's love. Uh, and 100%. Movie, the mm-hmm. movie takes this... I, I'll give a little bit of context. Basically, the first half of this film, you get a sense of this character of Alethea. But what it is is really... Is this going to turn into a cautionary tale? Is this a Mm. movie about wishes? Is this movie a tale of tales? Well, it really is everything combined. Mm -hmm. But the main theme is about feminism in a Mm. lot of ways Mm -hmm. and about a woman choosing a life of being an intellectual and the loneliness of that and throwing yourself into work and stories in academia leaves somebody maybe not experiencing the adventures on their own. And that's who she is. And when she gets into a room with this Jin who tells her all these tales mm. of love and war wanting. and wanting, mm. she realizes in that moment that she hasn't had that love or those adventures. And she's like a middle-aged woman at this mm. time. And that's what makes her make this wish. So, Claire, I love that you immediately go right to her fear of mortality as being the driving, motivating Well, yeah, because she feels like she doesn't have that... Time. An important story to tell, and she doesn't have time. Like, in the novella, basically, her first wish is to... She actually makes a first wish in the Mm. novella, and she wishes that her body was the same as a time when she felt like she really loved it and he changes mm. her body to be 32. It's about it's a crisis. It's mm. a feminist female crisis. Well, yeah, when in the beginning of this movie where she's talking to Jin and she's saying like, "No, I am happy with my life. Like, sure I am a solitary creature, but like I feel quite content." There was a big part of me that was like good for her like she doesn't have to be married and have kids to be happy like it's not about love it's about story everybody wants a story to tell at the end of their mm. life and I think it kind of plays in the movie as she wants love but she just really wants a story yes. that's worthy of telling and throughout the film you see her having these like hallucinations mm-hmm. of all these, you know, mythical characters. And it's because as a narratologist, you have to be able to insert yourself into the story you're telling, whether it's your personality or your own beliefs. And it's this idea that stories change over time depending on who's telling them. Mm-hmm. And you see how she, she, she almost is like an unreliable narrator in a lot of ways because you don't know what's true and what's her mm-hmm. own version of the story and mm. her own retelling of a story. So I don't even know if the Jin thing even happened or if that was just one of her stories at the end. But I think that that actually speaks to the, the power of stories themselves and mm. why this is revolving around an idea of a Jin. Because really the jinn is all about the paradox of being human and mm. all of our conflicting desires. The yin mm. and the yang of us, right? Like we want 
to make a wish for this thing for everlasting life or for a million dollars or for eternal love or for a nicer ass or whatever it might be <laughs> but it's all gonna come with the flip side of that coin right mm -hmm. yeah and it might not be what we desire and i think that their relationship too like you're right, Sinclair. I think this isn't necessarily about love. It is about her just wanting to have a grand story worthy mm -hmm. of the tales that she's obsessed over her whole life. Mm -hmm. But of course she would want that. Because yeah. how could you not? Mm -hmm. It's not enough as a human mm -hmm. to just observe forever. Mm -hmm. yeah. Eventually, if given the opportunity, you have to engage. And you trick yourself into thinking that it's okay. And that's where they met in the middle. Because even the djinn shares that story about when he was one of them cast him aside and he ended up at the bottom of the ocean in the little vessel holding him he was there for however many centuries and he had to convince himself mm, right. that trick himself into thinking that that's what he wanted and that mm. that was okay he wanted the isolation it was mm. the only way to survive and that's essentially paralleling her story she has mm -hmm. convinced herself that she's happy and content in her isolation as a solitary creature not engaging but just observing mm -hmm. and documenting and just telling yeah mm. yeah and analyzing and telling yeah and i think that in terms of a love story if we wanted to look at this as some sort of love story it really is like two people coming together after living a life and just sharing the stories of your life like I picture mm. two older people on a date and how much they actually mm. have to talk about and how much yeah. they've lived through and how could it be a boring date if you get like two 70 year olds together they've lived <laughs> full lives and now they're sharing it with each so other so long as so they can remember it as long <laughs> yeah yeah oh one thing I found interesting too is that Alethea her name isn't Alethea in the novella. It's like Jillian. And oh, really? And it's changed to Alethea wow. in the movie. And that name is actually the mythical goddess of truth, mm -hmm. which I thought was really interesting because we don't know what's true and, and what's not mm. with the stories that she's telling. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like a game of telephone, um, mm -hmm. how tales are adapted and retold and they're changed over time to the point where we don't know the, what the truth is anymore. And um, even with the Queen Sheba part, the djinn is telling the story and Alethea is going like, is that how it's happened? And he's like, of course it is. I, I was there, mm. you know? And she's like, that's not how I heard that story. Mm. And he's like, I was there. And, and who knows better than the person that actually experienced it? And I think that that is something that's so fascinating whenever we talk about history, right? Like mm -hmm. even at the very beginning of this film, there's a sequence where Tilda is participating in a lecture all about the stories, the power of stories, basically. And they're saying that stories are the thing that transcend time. They're mm -hmm. what connect us to our present, bind us to our past, allow us to dream of our future. And even George Miller, when I was reading an interview with him and he was talking about in Australia, um, where he grew up, he is really inspired by indigenous stories. Mm -hmm. and in the cultures where he was and he said you know we're talking about cultures that are dating back tens of thousands of years of like yeah. continuous culture where they're sharing an oral history they call it song lines but these are stories that have been passed on over millennia mm -hmm. how reliable are they and even all of our history there's been so much conversation about how reliable is our history mm -hmm. written by you know basically conquering white men stories are the thing that give us meaning 
mm-hmm. that give us meaning to our past, present, and future ideas of ourselves. But yet, how much do we really know that we can trust them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This movie did make me more curious about the stories within the story. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the Queen of Sheba. I've heard of the Queen of Sheba, but I don't know anything about that story. And it, it and it did make me realize that there's all of these like ancient stories that I don't know that I've just heard of in popular culture or whatever. And so that made me want to digest that information. So yeah, like the stories within the story I found interesting, but the story of the movie I didn't find as interesting. And I think a lot of time was allocated to flashbacks. Yeah. So And and don't get me wrong, like I love A Tale of Tales. I do. I could watch a movie that's just an anthology of tales. Mm-hmm. I felt that most of the time we every time we were moving forward to really like ground this movie mm-hmm. we moved further away from it by going to a flashback mm. so we just kept drifting in and out of like the core heart of this mm-hmm. film and that made it feel a little disconnected and, yes. and a lot of time was allocated to those flashbacks because the yeah. worlds were so fantastical and mm-hmm. it sort of derailed the pacing a little bit yeah. yes. of the film, for sure. But I did also, I have to say, those flashbacks were filled with really rich story, oh, yeah. fascinating oh, yeah. characters, really unique accounts of stuff mm-hmm. that's happening. So they were, in and of themselves, fascinating little stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it just makes the switch of the tone seem really disconnected because yeah. it is that tale of tales, and then it suddenly goes to this romance where the yes. Jesus brought back to England and suddenly it's like living this life as a dating couple yeah in jolly old England <laughs> you know I dreamed of gin or whatever <laughs> like it just the tone just switched. To- I completely agree yeah and yeah. I mean there is a couple scenes I thought that kind of stuck out like a sore thumb like the scene where she's going through security and yes. doesn't want his bottle to go through the x-rays kind of I found it to be funny but I was like why did we see that and, and the same racist thing with, neighbors yeah same thing yes. with the neighbors I'm like yeah what is this why am I seeing these racist neighbors now like what is this doing for the story I think I think that they're there to kind of represent an other side of like the spiritual realm because you'll see that in you'll remember that in that moment when they were kind of yelling at her and berating her it also became surreal a bit they weren't just people there was like a modification Mm -hmm. to the sound they almost became demonic Mm -hmm. and we there's a precedence in this film set in one of his earlier stories where there are clearly other types of spirits right he is stopped from saving um one of the women in the earlier time the pregnant one by some other type of demon and so I guess I just assumed that they were some other type of spirit Mm. that was malevolent Mm -hmm. well there's also I think a battle between science versus the mythical and just Mm. reality versus fantasy and it's really is interweaving through this whole film so it might have something to do with that maybe her reality blending with her fantasy and the harsh realities coming in while she's kind of playing out this you know romantic story in her mind and I thought it was interesting too because she's fascinated with the mythical but the djinn is fascinated with science Mm -hmm. so they're both kind of getting swept up in these different worlds but I think at the end of the day he doesn't last in 
the real world. He's not surviving in the real world. He's kind of like losing himself and like turning mm-hmm. to vapor. And I think exactly. it's this idea that you can't live in fantasy all the time. Mm. Fantasy doesn't survive in reality always. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So this is really a two-hander of a film. We've got our mm-hmm. two incredible actors, Tilda, Idris Elba. What did we think of the performances? I mean, they're both incredible to watch. I, the entire time, was so distracted by Tilda Swinton's incredible glowing skin. She, I thought, <laughs> Helen, I, make, I swear to you, I, I was like, what is her secret? I would yeah. have never thought Tilda Swinton as a, like someone that I need to see on the Vogue YouTube channel giving us her skincare uh-huh. routine. But she clearly has one because I thought the exact same thing. I couldn't stop I staring know. at her face. I was like, oh my God, she has like no wrinkles. It's so glowy, but it doesn't look Botoxy. <laughs> like, it's because she's just not from this planet. True. Yeah. I mean, she is the mythical creature, let's be real. Mm-hmm. But. It's almost hard to believe her as a spinster because yeah. she is so unique and so ethereal looking. Um, yeah. What I love about her is that she, I do believe her as a spinster because she can be ice mm-hmm. cold and mm. distant and reserved. But then when they make love, when they finally open up <laughs> yeah. near the end, I fully believe her in those scenes too. Right. I, I was utterly blown away by Tilda Swinton in this film. It's such an incredible performance the tiniest subtleties on her face she can just hold stillness even when the the tiniest little scene when they're going up the elevator and they're talking in behind mm-hmm. her and she, it's just on her face and she just has this sort of bemused look but it's so ah flawless and captivating i'm just like blown away by her all the time Mm-hmm. You saying that it's a two-hander film and then, you know, thinking back on it, it's like, yeah, you need two incredible actors in those roles for people to stay interested. And I actually thought that they had some really nice chemistry. Like, mm-hmm. as much as I didn't really believe, oh, okay, you want to fall in love with this person now, I also did get on board with it because of the way they were acting together. And I felt mm-hmm. sad at the end. I was like, no, the, I want these two people to be able to be together. Mm-hmm. And Idris Alba just there's something about his eyes and the way that he would look at her and I'm like, oh my god, I'm melting. <laughs> For oh, genie yeah. Idris he, Alba. He has like a just universe like oof. Well, yes. here's a question Smolder. for you, Edison. Do you who is hotter to you? Idris Elba as the djinn or yes. Idris Elba in Cats with the Silky? Oh. Fern? Oh my. As the djinn. <laughs> as the djinn. Yeah. Because of the whole eternal. Uh, the love making scene as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, the luxurious fur on that cat was quite something, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> and you know, I, both of them are actually really funny like they both have mm-hmm. a sense of humor and you wouldn't necessarily associate with them with being funny mm-hmm. but they are effortless in in their humor with each other in this and the whole way she's like I, you know i bet you're a trickster mm. and there's this really fun banter that happens between them i love i actually loved watching them just go back and forth yeah i thought that was a really great pairing and I would actually love to see them do more things together they both are so in command of their craft Mm. and every delivery you know Idris Elba is playing a giant genie (laughs) and the language as well the dialogue Mm. is very robust yeah none of this is easy and 
also there's a lot of it in this film. Yeah. And they both handle it so professionally. Like I thought they were both really excellent. Yeah. And um, I mean, a lot of this was shot against green screen and with G- CGI mm-hmm. and they are so in it despite all of that. Like there, this mm-hmm. was meant to be a lot more uh, real world and because of COVID and stuff, it was more CGI than they expected it to be. But well, why don't we just use that as a natural segue, Helen? Let's talk mm. about the technical of this film. Okay. So yeah, this was supposed to be filmed between Australia, London and Istanbul in March of 2020. <laughs> And yeah, and so it got delayed, obviously, and then it got ended up being filmed all in Australia in November of 2020. So Mm. they were going to shoot on location for the Istanbul and the London stuff, and then they couldn't. And you can kind of see that in those scenes that are set in Istanbul and London. Like, it does feel a little like, where are we right now? This Mm. doesn't feel as like authentic as it could be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, watching this, I was thinking of directors that are masters of creating fantastical worlds and adventures and Mm. immediately you think of george miller for sure like george Mm -hmm. miller's one of the top ones um tarasam singh i also thought could have done this movie (laughs) really well and terry gilliam could have done this movie Mm. really well too yeah Yeah. um this movie reminded me so much of the fall Mm. i i was thinking tarasam singh was probably like damn i didn't get to the source material first but (laughs) george miller is really a visual storyteller he really excels when it comes to like just arresting visuals and he actually doesn't need much of a story usually to bring us on an adventure I think that this one obviously we've discussed story already I think that this source material was more dense than he's worked with before Mm. if you think about you know fury road there really isn't much story to that most of that is d- shown through the action and the visuals mm-hmm. but but what about babe pig in the city pig in the city yeah <laughs> or happy feet <laughs> yeah yeah i think um, i find him to be a really fascinating director with how versatile he is this yeah. is somebody who has done mad max and also babe pig in the city and mm-hmm. the witches of eastwick yeah and like yeah. these are all really radically different films in terms of tone and style and everything but I am I am very curious why the detour into Happy Feet and Babe Pig in the City happened. Just a paycheck. <laughs> no, okay. I don't. I don't no. know if it's just a paycheck or not. I don't think he gives a shit about that. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't strike me as such. I think he really likes the stories and think about eh? those films. Mm-hmm. I haven't e- seen that even <laughs> in Babe Pig in the City. You're really immersed in that world. Like yeah. you've really... seen that movie. Yes. When my little brother Sean was a very young kid is when the original Babe came out. Mm-hmm. And I am not lying. I, I swear to you, I'm not exaggerating. He watched that movie every single fucking day. <laughs> every single day. And then the second Babe Pig in the City came out a few years later, he was like five at the time. He watched that movie every single day. Okay. I saw, I've seen Babe Pig in the City a hundred times. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and it's good. Well, I mean, in the witches, the witches of Eastwick, it's about you know single women and uh, mm. a cautionary tale of of wishing. So mm-hmm. that could have been mm-hmm. you know a lead into this one. He obviously yeah. loves that kind of source material. Mm-hmm. I think um, I want to shout out like visually, this film mm-hmm. is spectacular. Yeah. yeah, it really is. A lot of that has to do with the production design by Roger Ford and the effects, the special effects and the art direction and all the rest. 
The cinematographer on this is John Seal, who he's worked with before on Mad Max, mm-hmm. uh, Fury Road, and who also was a cinematographer for The Talented Mr. Ripley, another just sumptuous, mm-hmm. gorgeous film. And I don't know, like, I just thought there were so many unique shots oh, in, yeah. in this film. Like, it was really cool. I was really taken aback by the style of it in the beginning. Like, the shot, you mentioned this already, but the shot in the elevator that is mm-hmm. taken from down below and kind of diagonal yeah. and puts you into this, you know, off-kilter. skew yeah. perspective, yeah. And then a lot of the editing choices in the beginning, too, I really liked. Like, there's a, a moment where, you know, the plane is landing and you see the three wheels and then it cuts to the three wheels of the cart that she's carrying her mm-hmm. luggage in. And then there's the applause in the theater that then gets cut to the guy like swirling around the noisemaker thing and there was a lot of really sharp cuts like that that I really liked Mm -hmm. Um, but then that kind of just stopped Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. all those the the more like sharp stylistic stuff that I found in the beginning I I wish it would have carried on a little bit more throughout the energy wasn't consistent yeah Mm -hmm. I also I thought the costuming was great too by um, Kim Barrett because there was a lot of different, you know, you're covering different time periods and oh. all very like lavish. I was hoping lavish. that the gin was going to pop up in like the 60s or oh, in the that'd 80s be so or cool. 90s. Oh, I actually thought it was going there. I was like, oh man, like we're going to go through the ages. There was one it. moment where he's wearing this like gorgeous like red velvet mm-hmm. robe. And it looked like it weighed about 40 pounds. And I was like, I must have that. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Yeah, really, really impressive technically, I think. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. We kind of all kind of agree on that. Okay, well, what's the final word on 3,000 Years of Longing? Yeah, I appreciated the imagination and the originality of this movie. And just, like, it wasn't a fucking superhero movie. That's really cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's like, what it it's something... come down to for Helen. <laughs> it's not a superhero movie? Yes. Okay, great. <laughs> But Five it was stars. still like had epic proportions to it, but it w- wasn't a superhero movie. And I mm. appreciated that. I thought it was a unique story to tell. Did the story as a whole move me to tears? No, but there's a lot I appreciated about this movie. Sinclair? Yeah, I'll always be up for a movie like this. I loved seeing this in the theater. I got my popcorn and my candy and I was like, yes, George Miller, transport me. Uh, Mm -hmm. Even though there were some holes in the story for me, I I had just a feeling that it was a bit incomplete and unfocused in parts. It had really arresting visuals. And yeah, that kind of experience is always worth it for me. And it always Mm -hmm. makes going to the movie theater fun. Yeah. I could not agree more. I think that this was a little imbalanced as a film. It wasn't a knock it out of the park in every way. But I still really enjoyed it and really appreciated it. I love, as you say, a tale of tales. Mm -hmm. And I love a big thematic story like this. These actors are both incredible. It shares a sort of kinship to The Only Lovers Left Alive as well. Mm -hmm. And I love that. I I don't know. I really enjoyed this movie. I did. It's Mm -hmm. certainly not going to be for everyone. And it's certainly not perfect. But I really Mm. enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. This week, we challenge ourselves to watch a film that fits a particular theme, and the theme this episode is, be careful what you wish for, mm. because they're all cautionary tales. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is our week in entertainment. Who would like to go first? I'll go first. I always go first. <laughs> 
<laughs> Thank you, Helen. You go first. Youngest goes first. Okay, wow. so I picked this movie before I saw 3,000 Years of Longing. I did not realize how connected it was going to be. Um, I watched a movie called The Gin. Uh, amazing. From 2021. I didn't know he was going to also be a gin. I didn't. I'd never heard what? the word gin. Well, I didn't know. I didn't know the word gin. Oh, you watched it before three thousand years. Yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah. that's funny. Okay. <laughs> uh, have either of you heard of this? No. No. Is it a horror okay. film? It's a horror film. Yeah. Oh yeah, I have heard of it. Yes. <laughs> it came out in twenty twenty one. It was written and directed by both David Charbonnier and Justin Powell. Starring Ezra Dewey, Rob Brownstein, and Tevi Poe. So Ezra what Dewey, what a big, big league A-listers uh, amongst that crew. <laughs> it's a very, very, very indie film. <laughs> okay, so Ezra Dewey plays Dylan, a mute boy who moves into a new. <laughs> Sorry, this is so Ezra shady. Dewey. Like Ezra Dewey, superstar. <laughs> he he's actually really good. Okay. Oh, my God. You guys shaming my film. Okay. Ezra Dewey plays Dylan, a mute boy who moves into a new apartment with his father after something happens to his mother that we don't find out about until later in the film. In a closet in this new apartment, Dylan finds a creepy old mirror and a book of shadows and discovers a page about summoning a djinn to grant his heart's desire. In order to summon this gin, he has to light a candle at 11 p.m., drop some blood in it, say an incantation in the mirror, and then he has to basically survive the gin for an hour before he can blow out the candle and get his wish granted at midnight. Like survive wow. the gin. So the gin is murderous? Kind of, yeah. Can't he just wish for the gin to be chill and friendly? Well, he only gets one wish with this gin. Oh. And you, wi- you make the wish before you summon him. Oh. So poor little uh, Dylan wishes that he had a voice because he's mute. Jin comes to life and is like a shapeshifter and tar- starts to take the form of different like things that it finds in the apartment. So there's a newspaper article about a, a convict who escaped from prison and it like swirls over the newspaper article and then it becomes that convict Ooh. and is trying to like kill Dylan. And then, like, swirls over a portrait of the man that used to live in the apartment and becomes the, the man. That's quite in keeping with gin tradition, to be fair. Well, There's okay, so... In the lore. <laughs> yeah. So this movie, I was watching it, and you can tell that it's, like, incredibly low budget. But I was really intrigued by how they were going to pull it off and if it was going to be effectively scary. And I, I was actually scared by this movie. And then I was looking up afterwards. I read an interview with the filmmakers. They had done a movie in 2020 called The Boy Behind the Door, uh, which was another like kind of indie horror movie that I think did quite well. And they had another movie that they were set to make, and then it got pushed. So they decided in that time to make this movie. And basically they had an apartment for a month. And they're like, what can we film in this apartment? Mm -hmm. And they didn't want to be loud because there was neighbors. So they're like, oh, let's just make the guy a mute. (laughs) Wild. So that's like problem solving. But it's it. But it like did produce like a decent movie. It's not. What about the special effects, though? Like you have to show it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's creatively (laughs) done. Like they're not. 
you're seeing like smoke swirling and stuff like when it's not in human form but the shots that we do get are creepy and are scary and the small choices that are made throughout the film make sense basically for how it was made and how it came together is actually not a bad movie but here's my issue my biggest issue with it can I tell you what happens are either of you gonna watch this no I'm not gonna watch this no okay so you get you (laughs) that's fine you get a flashback throughout the film of Dylan waking up to his mother crying in the kitchen and you don't know what happens. And then you find out that she was crying in the kitchen and then she shoots herself in the head and that he was coming up to stop her, but he couldn't speak, so he couldn't stop her. So he has this like wow. trauma. Yeah. He has this trauma over, you know, his mother killing himself, him not being able to stop her because he can't speak. He goes through this hour of like pure hell and then eventually the gin actually becomes his mother. And is like torturing him as his dead mother. And then he survives the gin. He blows up the candle. So you're like, great. He won. He's going to get his voice. So the next morning, his dad comes home from working a night shift. And then the gin steals the dad's voice and gives yeah. it to the son. That's some so mon- now that's the dad. Shit right there. Yeah. So yeah. now the dad, who his job is at a radio announcer, uh, has no voice and the son has and, no and that's job. how it ends mm. and it's like so fucking tragic and it's this poor like 10 year old boy and I just I finished the movie and I was like that was so sad oh, <laughs> like I hate that it was wow. almost it was almost too sad to be scary like it was actually really <laughs> tragic oh why yeah. did you tell us that because I needed you to know what I went through last night Wow. Um, so anyway, sorry to any listeners that were planning on watching that movie because I just spoiled it for you. But I did think it was like an interesting, you know, decently done horror movie on a super small budget with like no planning. Yeah. <laughs> a rousing endorsement from Helen. Yeah. Um, okay, who wants to go next? Edison. Well, uh, someone's got to, you know, <laughs> add some levity to this. Um, so I guess I'll go next. For my, for my film, fitting the theme, Be Careful What You Wish For, I went all the way back to 1988 for a little bout of nostalgia directed by Penny Marshall, written by Gary Ross and Ann Spielberg. And it is big, starring Tom Aww, Hanks. Aw, fun. Yes. <laughs> Along with Elizabeth Perkins and Robert Loggia. I'm assuming that you've both seen big, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. Correct. Yeah, and I feel like probably most of our listeners have seen this film. It's like a classic and Tom Hanks. I am sure that I had seen it at one point. My mom's I watched it with my mom and she swears that she had watched it with me when I was a kid, but I I didn't really remember it. So it was I was actually really excited to watch this again. I love Tom Hanks so much and especially young Tom Hanks in this era. And it's really interesting. So For anyone who doesn't remember, the basic plot line is you've got these two kids, Josh and best friend Billy. And Josh is, you know, got a crush on this girl. And the carnival is in town, like the fair. And Mm. he's trying to get on a ride and he sneaks in line to, like, try and get on with her. But he can't get on because he's too short. And so he's all dejected and he, you know, (laughs) suddenly spots this creepy wizard machine called Zoltar and kind of looks a bit demonic and it says make a wish put in a quarter and make a wish 
And so he does, and he says, I wish I were big. And then the wind <laughs> picks up. A little chit of paper comes out and says, your wish is granted. And then he notices that the Zoltar machine isn't plugged in. And he's like, ah, and the wind picks up, and he runs home, and he goes to bed. And then he wakes up in the morning as 30-year-old Tom Hanks. <laughs> and <clears throat> then it goes from there. It's a really silly kind of story that you have to just accept that this is mm-hmm. the 80s, that there's going to be plot holes aplenty, that none of it really has to, you know, he like gets a job, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> first he runs into the city, they're outside New York and he's staying at this like cheap hotel and his he tries to convince his mom that he's him, but she of course freaks out and is mm-hmm. like chases him out of the house with a knife what have you done with my son yeah but he freaky. does manage to convince his best friend billy because they have this like secret song that they kind of sing back and forth to one another so billy is helping him like well you gotta go find this old time machine and this is definitely a cautionary tale but it's also actually a really interesting one so as josh who's now tom hanks is awkwardly in the city he man has to get a job because how how Mm -hmm. else are you going to afford to live and you think initially that this is going to be a series of sort of blunders about how difficult it actually is to be an adult and how Mm. really like celebrate the the bliss of being a child but actually josh kind of nails it as an adult and his life is like pretty (laughs) (laughs) kick-ass He gets a job as at like a toy company and then the boss is Robert Loggia sees him at a FAO Schwartz store and they mm-hmm. inadvertently have this little dance off on like one of these one of those like floor piano things yeah. and they're doing chopsticks and hard and soul. And so he gets a job as vice president of toy development. And then there's like a, a romance. Wow. Yeah. Easy. And his, basically his job is just like to play with toys and then give his feedback. So it's perfect for the 13 year old. But he's nailing it. He gets a penthouse apartment. He's really growing up and becoming big and understanding about the complexities of adulthood and learning quickly. He even has sex. They don't show that thankfully, but they it's they lead into it and then have him dancing That's down weird. the hall. <laughs> it is. And it was really awkward watching it. It is. You're like, they're not going to. Mom's like, he's not going to bed her, is he? And then... <laughs> <laughs> but yes, they did. <sighs> and it's really kind of weird. Meanwhile, there's like pictures of him on the back of milk cartons as a missing kid. So you're kind of forced to think about like... When he finally, like, reveals the truth to Susan, his co-worker, and she believes him eventually, she he says, you could come with me. And she says, oh, no, I've already been there. It was hard enough the first time. You know, I don't need to go through that again. And, so and also, is... how is she going to come with you? What? Well, Here's she... your 30-year-old girlfriend. <laughs> no, she could have made the wish. He found the Zoltar machine oh, again. Oh, I see, I see, I right? see. Right? And wished to go back to himself. Oh, okay. But, so that is this real truth to it, where it's like, mm. yeah, childhood was kind of really cool and easy, but adulthood is also all right. <laughs> I don't know. This was a really fun movie. It is... It definitely is like a, a bit of a cautionary tale because I I think realistically how on earth could this kid go back to like then being a thirteen year old and being like wait a minute I just like ran a I was just vice president of a company none of these like he's yeah I just had sex with this like professional New York eighties woman how am I gonna like crush <laughs> over this other thirteen year old girl like you know I don't know but 
Fig is a classic for a reason, and I do love Penny Marshall. I will mm-hmm. shout her out for being the director of The Preacher's Wife, starring Whitney. And mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> but yeah, what about Tom Hanks? Tom Hanks is wonderful. He's yeah. perfect. He is inherently so good yeah. and good natured, yeah. and sort of is able to play that naivety really, really well. Mm-hmm. Like Jennifer Garner in Thirteen Going on Thirty, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Similar yeah. energy, just so good. Yeah. Yeah. Cute. Yeah, great film. Big. <laughs> Cute. <laughs> Certainly better than demonic, murderous, traumatized. I mean, <laughs> hey, I was in the mood for it. Oh. Uh, okay, Sinclair, what about you? What did you watch? I watched a movie called The Love Witch from 2016, hmm. directed mm-hmm. by Ann Biller. Mm-hmm. Little synopsis for y'all. A modern-day witch uses spells and magic to get men to fall in love with her with deadly consequences. Ah, as always, I am a rose between two thorns. No, no, no. This is not, no. No. So this story revolves around a character named Elaine who is said to be a witch. Who's in this movie? Actually, I want you to look this movie up. Because I want you to see it. I want you to see the visuals. What drew me to watching this movie originally was the way it looked. And wait till you see it. Oh, I have seen this poster. Yes. Yeah. Like beautiful. Just beautiful. Oh, wow. Gorgeous poster. Yeah. This movie looks like it was made in the 60s. Yeah. And it's a throwback to old Hollywood Technicolor um, melodramas. And it's also like very Hitchcockian. So it's meant to mm. look like a, a Technicolor movie from the 60s. And it does. Cool. Like it's beautiful. So the story revolves around this character named Elaine. She's said to be a witch. She has had her heart broken by her husband. And then he mysteriously died. And she was taken in by this occult or this coven. And was taught the ways of being a witch. So at the beginning of this movie, she has this sexy, fresh start. She has these glossy red lips and, and red nails and this beautiful red convertible. And she's driving to this, you know, new home. And it looks like one of those classic convertible shots of a like a femme fatale or our heroine, mm. like driving in, in the convertible, the wind in her hair and just beautiful. Mm. Elaine is this beautiful witchy seductress and she's obsessed with love and obsessed with finding love and being loved and it's to the point where she starts like mixing these potions and seducing men and really what she's doing is she's just drugging these men. (laughs) Okay. The the tagline of this film is she loves men dot dot dot. To death. To death. Oh. <laughs> so she's like drugging these men and seducing them and sleeping with them mm. and making them fall in love with her. And really it starts becoming a problem because they start to become so obsessed with her that they're contemplating suicide and they're just so enamored with her. They can't get on with their everyday life and they become like suffocating to her. Mm. And it just doesn't end up being this fairy tale that she was was hoping for and Mm -hmm. also there's a detective on the case because all these men are turning up dead and there's all these signs that it's pointing to a witch that's doing this but (laughs) really this movie has so many themes that it explores there's love addiction there is 
idolizing relationships and not wanting the reality of what really loving another person entails Mm -hmm. there's exploration of female sexuality and and that's being compared to witchcraft and how that needs to be controlled by men and there's the idea of a woman being sexual and using her sexuality as being a very dangerous thing also the character of elaine there's uh narcissism there's entitlement Mm -hmm. in there there's the feeling that you deserve love, you deserve to be loved by everybody, you want the attention of everybody. And so there's there's a lot of psychological things that are explored in this, and it's all done in this campy, colorful, melodramatic style that just makes it so much fun to watch. Hmm. Also, in, in terms of men, there's this idea that men want this perfect woman hmm. who is sexy and obedient and that's what they wish every woman is and Mm. then they get a woman and that's not the case women are complex and Mm -hmm. they have emotions and they have their own desires and you know you realize that we're all just humans at the end of the day there's no ideal person there's no real fantasy um and and love isn't a fairy tale Mm. so i think that this film is really good at exploring all of that. It's a little too long, to be honest. I think it could have been a little bit shorter, but just looking at this movie is entertaining. It's really cool because it looks like it's set in the 60s, but it is set in our time, and it's a a way of exploring these different ideas of modern dating in an Mm. old visual style, which is really cool. And Ann Biller has developed this cult following, and... It, it feels cult classic when, when you watch it. Cool. Cool thing about her, really quickly, her mother is a fashion designer and her father is a visual artist who specialized in like bright colors. Oh, and wow. she grew up watching a lot of classic cinema and you see that in this movie. And her Ooh. next movie, she's doing an adaptation of Bluebeard, which hmm. is, you know, a tale of a man who like murders all his his wives and it's like this cautionary tale about be obedient to your husband so i'm really curious the feminist um spin she will put on on that tale yeah so she's very up i really i like her she's cool she's one uh, to watch she's one to watch yeah yeah she was also the costume designer on this film that's really cool yeah oh wow that's awesome and the production designer yeah yeah. Wow. Like it's like she's like a true and visionary. And the music composer. Yeah, oh true my visionary. God. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh talk movie to me listeners, what do you wish for? What are your wishes, hopes and dreams for season 6 of Talk Movie to Me? Is there anything you desperately want us to cover? Any performer's career that you're dying for us to focus in on? <laughs> Submit your wishes to talkmovietome at gmail.com and maybe we'll grant them. Maybe yeah. we Yeah. <laughs> or slide into our DMs on any of the socials. Let yeah. us know. So this has been our first episode of season six of Talk Movie to Me. As I said, you can get in touch with us at our email or on Instagram at Talk Movie to Me, Twitter at TMTM Podcast. Uh, if you would like to become a Patreon member, head on over to patreon.com slash Talk Movie to Me. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. Thanks. And welcome back. <laughs>